It's Wednesday, November 3rd. You're tuned in to Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us today. A big show coming up. Sheldon Kennedy joining us in about seven minutes. Dr. Jody Carrington making her triumphant return. Anything Jody does is triumphant. They could, Dr. Jody. Dr. Jody. It's, it's like, uh, you know, back in the days, people just the, the first name basis with, with big time television personalities. I mean, Oprah's the classic I was example. Say Oprah, Ellen, but but even if like if you were going to say I spend my afternoons with Phil, people would know that you were going to be hanging out with Donahue, right? Before Doctor Phil came I was along. Say Donahue, <laughs> Donahue is the OG. Yeah, Donahue is the guy that yeah. But uh, but uh, Doctor Jody, I think in particular in Western Canada, but uh, very much looking forward to that conversation. Plus, we're going to be checking in with a spokesperson, Conrad Brown from Teal Jones. Forestry. This is the forestry company involved in Ferry Creek. Uh, the other side of the story. It's what you get here. Oftentimes on Real Talk, when there's another side to consider, we want to dig into it. So that's coming up on today's show in about 90 minutes from now. We'll get into our question of the week. We're going to take you out to Jasper. But first, let me remind you that this show is made possible with the support of our presenting sponsor, the team at Bitcoin Well. It's been a huge year for Bitcoin Well. They went public. They're growing their team big time. They were named one of Canada's fastest growing companies in the Globe and Mail. And then founding CEO Adam O'Brien just named one of Edify's top 40 under 40 in the city of Edmonton. You can check out edifyedmonton.com if you want to read the profile on Adam. I think he's okay with me pointing out that he's not even 30 yet, which is pretty cool. 29 years of age this this young whippersnapper steering this team an amazing story of understanding crypto getting into it early and then building a, a really remarkable business model from our team to the team at bitcoin well a big congratulations on the honor let's do this real talk starts right now here's ryan jesperson As mentioned, we'll be talking to Sheldon Kennedy coming up in five minutes or so. Of course, there's a lot going on around the world as well. The COP26 conference, you've probably been paying attention. The United Nations Climate Change Conference. Producer Sarah Hoyles has been keeping an eye on all of these developments. We'll get into the details of a global methane pledge, uh, which has just been announced between the U.S. and the European Union. But, of course, Canada represented here. In, in in a sense, I mean, the prime minister is there. I know a lot of people are talking about whether provincial premiers should be there. Uh, there's a, a comparison here. People are going, well, if Newfoundland is represented, why, sh- you know, Alberta should be represented. Why isn't Alberta there? Alberta rolling out some of its own climate initiatives on home soil, so to speak, this week, which has been interesting to see. But Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, delivering remarks at the conference, and we wanted to get you up to speed on that. If you've not been paying attention uh, to what the PM was telling essentially the rest of the world, uh, including other global leaders in attendance. A lot of it has to do with the carbon tax. And uh, as you'll hear, I was kind of chuckling as I was listening to the comments, not because I think it's funny, but because some of the comments are undeniable. I, I should let the prime minister speak for himself and then we'll dig into it. So, so why don't we tee this up? This is the prime minister. This is Justin Trudeau at COP26. I committed that Canada would put a price on pollution. We did that. And despite stiff political opposition, the Supreme Court upheld it and Canadians supported it 
in our last two elections. We know pollution pricing is key to getting emissions down while getting innovation up and running. Our carbon price trajectory is one of the most globally ambitious ones, and it's rising to $170 a tonne in 2030. This is a meaningful price on pollution designed not just to make life cleaner, but also make life more affordable and less expensive for Canadians. I call on other countries to do the same. Just as globally we've agreed to a minimum corporate tax, we must work together to ensure it is no longer free to pollute anywhere in the world. So that was on November 1st. That was on Monday. The Prime Minister says that, uh, pointing out that Canada, among the most ambitious plans on planet Earth, which is true. And I was I was sort of smirking, thinking to myself, how will that land in Canada when people hear this quote? And we should let you know, Real Talkers, that our Friday Real Talk roundtable is going to be committed to COP26 and talking about climate. Very much looking forward to that in a couple of days from now. But $170 a ton by 2030 is an ambitious target. When you, when you think conversations around a carbon tax started around $20, $30, $40 a ton. And with each of those increases, federal politicians, in particular in opposition, lamenting this, lamenting the impact on the price, the cost for Canadians. And in their minds, in critics' minds, the, the ineffective nature of a carbon tax And I thought it was interesting that the prime minister presented it as cynics would say spun it as a way to make life more affordable and less expensive. I do think that one hundred and seventy dollar a ton to to say something that's hardly profound. One hundred and seventy dollars a ton by 2030 is going to be a shocking tax for some people that have not taken steps to find efficiencies, right? Folks that have not been able to or have not been inclined to take those steps, it's going to be a big one. The prime minister putting that out in front of a global audience saying, this is evidence, this is proof that Canada is taking this commitment seriously. Yes, I, I just, I, I mean, I understand that when people don't have the ability, like the finances to actually make those adjustments, um, that can be really tricky. So I don't want to sound insensitive towards that. However, we need to do something. For sure. There is there is no denying. I mean, in his comments, he also referenced um, the small town that was wiped off the map because of forest fires. Lytton. Yeah, that was brutal. And he referenced it straight out of the gates saying, this these are the consequences. So either we adapt or we die. We're going to be talking about a carbon tax as one of the approaches uh, coming up on Friday with our Real Talk Roundtable. Very much looking forward to that. We, we want you to know, of course, that the show's keeping an eye on the conference and noting some of the more significant developments. And, and Sarah, a recent announcement there out of it, the Global Methane Pledge, which aims to limit methane emissions by 30%. Uh, compared with 2020 levels. So that gives uh, about a nine-year runway. 2030 is the, the the year that everybody's got circled on that long-term calendar. Of note, Russia, China, India, not part of the pledge. Uh, but what jumped out at you about this? This is obviously a big one. The U.S. president talking about it. That's who gets the attention at the big global summits. Let's be honest. When POTUS 
steps to the podium, regardless of who it is, people pay attention. Yeah, but I mean, to me, I'm kind of like, at least they're being honest. Russia and China and India, they're being like, yeah, we're not going to sign on to that. It's not going to happen. Also to the fact that there is... There are no, there's no enforcement. There's right. no one saying you have to do this and there are consequences or penalties if you don't meet these things. So yeah, it's great. I can say that I'm going to earn a million dollars this year. Will I? Maybe. Well, this has been a lot but of the If the race comes through. You know, people talk about Kyoto, people talk about Paris, yeah. and that's been a big part of it. Uh, saying, well, there's no enforcement. There's there's really no commitment. You know, countries can, you know, I mean, look what the United States did under former President Trump. Exactly. They're, pull, they're pulling out, right? Pulling out of the Paris Accord. It doesn't matter. So so we're trying to sort of take all of this with a grain of salt as as observers. Yeah. And I'll look forward to seeing what our panel has to say on Friday about this. You can always send us your thoughts to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Uh, love to hear from you. Love to hear your emails. Sheldon Kennedy, in just a second, I want to let you know uh, this is very important information. Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park have been in touch with me. And they said it's it's very important that real talkers are aware of the blizzards, the special edition blizzards we have going right now. The new sea salt toffee fudge blizzard. It just knocked back both of my colleagues in their chairs. The sea salt toffee fudge blizzard blends salted toffee pieces. Rich fudge pieces. It doesn't say they're hot. It just says rich fudge pieces. I believe them to be chunky. I'm going to have to go do some investigation. They're conky. I'm going to have to go on a a fudge finding mission. (laughs) And caramel topping the world famous soft serve to achieve true blizzard treat perfection. And don't forget the Oreo mocha fudge blizzard as well. Why not pair it up with a flamethrower burger and really treat yourself at the Dairy Queens and Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. We also wanted to let you know that our friends at Friesen Brothers, they want to remind you, of course, first of all, and I know you're going to say, well, well, Jesperson, a heck of a lot of good it's going to do me right now. You're telling me this on November 3rd. I was telling you on the first of the month, too. The first of every month, Friesen Brothers is knocking 15% off your bill, a minimum $75 bill at each of their 16 Alberta locations. That deal runs the first of every month from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. They've also got their Blazin' Savings deals. That runs today and tomorrow. You can find more information at Friesen.com. Well, the hockey world has certainly been rocked by the findings of an investigation into allegations made by a former prospect within the Chicago Blackhawks organization. By now, if you've been paying attention to this show and others, you know the story, the courageous story of Kyle Beach. And then, of course, of the accused in these circumstances and the fallout that the hockey community is feeling. We were grateful to have Tara Sloan join us yesterday from Hometown Hockey. And it's an absolute honor to welcome our next guest. Canadians know Sheldon Kennedy, a former pro hockey player, Memorial Cup champion, a world junior champion. He's also co-founder of the Calgary Child Advocacy Center, the first of its kind in Canada and the co-founder of Respect Group. He's a member of the Order of Canada and he's making his Real Talk debut this morning. Thanks for taking time for us, Sheldon. It's great to see you again. 
Yeah, you too, Ryan. Thanks for having me. You've been, can I just say, uh, we've seen you everywhere over the last few days, and we've seen you everywhere anytime a story like this pops up in sport, most particularly in hockey, uh, due in large part because of your own experience and the own courage, uh, the, the courage that you demonstrated over the years. Sheldon, does it ever get to a point? I mean, we're going to be talking to a psychologist about different subject matter after we talk about you. Is it ever easier for you to talk about this or, or do you have to go to a certain place in your own mind every single time you discuss sexual assault? Yeah, well, that's, you know, I think that's a, an important question, Ryan. I think, uh, you know, I, I had a chance to speak with Kyle and uh, I think that one of the myths out there is that when we first disclose, things get way better. And I think that that's, uh, you know, that's not the way it works. I think things get a lot more chaotic and uh, you're not able to suppress all those feelings and uh, those, you know, those <clears throat> those thoughts that uh, for somehow for a long time you were able to suppress. Once you open that lid, uh, they keep coming up and keep coming out until you deal with them. So, you know, I've been at this for 24 years and I think that uh, over time, you know, the first first few years, I told Sheldon's story, and what I learned uh, over time is that uh, um, you know we have to be very solution focused. I my message kind of switched into solution focused. How do we help? But I think that I needed to understand. You know, like I when I first started doing this work, I felt I had to help everyone, and I needed to take away everybody's pain, and it near killed me. And uh, you know, I I. Uh, literally and and i really had to learn how to listen and i really had to had to practice putting myself first in in other words what i mean by that is like my own health and well-being number one because if, if i can be healthy i show up better for others and that way i can help others so there's a few few lessons i've learned uh, personal uh, uh lessons i've learned over the last 24 years and i think right now i'm trying to uh, help um help uh bring clarity to issues that i think carry a lot of fear and hopefully present some solutions for uh moving forward so this doesn't happen to others i i recognize obviously that that you'll respect many elements maybe uh, in private elements of your conversation with kyle beach uh on the show yesterday we played a, a portion of his very moving and emotional interview, his conversation with Rick Westhead from TSN, uh, who was one of the journalists that certainly has done a remarkable job in reporting this story. Uh, Kyle's torn up. I mean, this is this is a guy you remember Sheldon in his draft year taking. I think it was seventh overall. Uh, this was a guy I mean, known as a beast. I mean, this was a guy that you, you, you wouldn't really tango with. I mean, this is one of these big, tough guys. And you see him in this interview. And his voice is wavering and his eyes are dropping and he's describing what it was like to feel basically like like a person of very little value as he sees his abuser celebrating with the Stanley Cup and championed by the team and participating in all these activities after Kyle had filed this complaint after he had disclosed what happened. What was it like for you to connect with Kyle, and, and as much as you're willing to share, where do you start a conversation with a person like that? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, Kyle and I are, you know, we can relate to the impact that these incidences have. And I think that's the, that's where, that's how I think, you know, any survivor or victim, whichever, you know, uh, word we want to use, but, uh, you know, of any real incident of trauma can, can connect with one another. And that's, uh, that's around 
the the impact. And you know, that's when I rollerbladed across the country in 1998. I mean, you know, we were getting 25 disclosures a day from different people, and and uh, you know, boys, girls, women, men, and you know, every story, the time, the place, the 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 incident, the type of abuse was different. But one thing that always hit me was that the impact was very consistent. And I think, you know, when we can get to that point of conversation and, um, you know, I think that's where, you know, what Kyle and I could relate to was its impact. And that is a very uh, relatable place for communication to happen uh, between two people that have uh, gone through similar incidences. And, you know, and I think, you know, the big thing right now is we just really need to support Kyle. And I think, you know, if we can, if we can handle the boots on the ground right now, keep this story in the forefront and change. I mean, at the end of the day, Kyle wants to see change and, you know, no different than, you know, what I want to see and, and what we need. And, uh, you know, if we can help in this way, um, you know, keep it going and let him focus on himself. And I think that was the big message to Kyle is take care of yourself, Kyle. And, uh, you know, don't get overwhelmed with, with everything uh, going on on the outside here. Uh, you know, we got you covered. We got your back and we're going to keep this moving forward for you. In my conversation with uh, Tara Sloan yesterday from Sportsnet, I, I referenced a tweet that she sent out. This was following NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman's media availability. Uh, Pierre Lebrun, the insider, asked the commissioner a question about you regarding whether or not the league would reach out to Sheldon Kennedy. Uh, you say they've never done so. And apparently, according to Tara, in her words, Batman dismissively and arrogantly noted that, quote, Sheldon's experience was not at the NHL level. Tara says, I'm still picking my jaw up off the floor. I don't know where to start with this. I guess I just took it for granted, Sheldon, to be honest, that that you would have been that you would have a direct line to Gary Batman. Is that true? The league has never reached out to you. Yeah, we uh you know, I mean, we've never heard from the NHL uh, or the NHLPA for, you know, ever since, you know, I left the league. So, um, which is, it is what it is. I think, uh, you know, that answer by Gary Bettman just shows <clears throat> the ignorance, the ignorance around these issues uh, that, uh, you know, and I mean, to me, I think, Ryan, the whole, this whole incident is a systemic response to a human issue. And, you know, and I think just listening to the way Gary responded to, you know, uh, that question or other questions in that press conference, I mean, there was, you know, quite a few questions where I felt he was quite defensive. Um, you know, it just shows how, how this could happen and how it's going to continue to happen until we break that systemic nature of the league. And I think that that's that culture shift that we're talking about. And, and uh, you know, to me, you know, for, you know, I, I, I applaud Tara for, for her words, but, you know, I've been around a long time around this stuff. It doesn't surprise me. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I think the NHL was really caught off guard by how society um, responded to this issue and how much anger there is uh, towards this incident and the non-action around it. And I think that goes to show how far we've come since, you know, I can relate to my disclosure from the time in 1996. I mean, we've educated over 1.7 million Canadians on these issues uh, across our country and counting every day in the workplace, in schools, in sport. And, and, you know, and there's an expectation from society that we 
we are better in this space. And when you look at all the headline stories, I mean, these stories, there's been a, a massive story around sexual assault or, you know, uh, sexual abuse uh, in the in the papers for, you know, the last 20 years, at least uh, every year. And you've got to be living under a rock uh, not to to hear about them, um, whether it's the Me Too campaign, whether it's the Black Lives Matter, whether it's the Sheldon Kennedy story, the Theron Fleury story, the Greg Bahuli story, the list goes on, the gymnastics, Larry Nasser case. I mean, you know, there was lots of opportunities for the NHL to look at this and to say, geez, how are we, how are we doing in this space in our organization? And and I think that the the uh, the systemic uh, nature of the league never allowed them to uh, to even think about that. And to me, I think this has rocked them and it's caught them off guard because um, you know they've they've literally uh, not paid attention to it and they've kind of been in their own bubble uh, in this space. And I think that uh, society has been showing up uh, around this case a big time, and uh, and they've shown that. Um, you know, things have changed and, and we need we need real change within this league so this doesn't happen because this is freaking unacceptable. Yeah, Sheldon, and, and you can probably add the Vancouver Whitecaps uh, football club, the soccer team <clears throat> to that list. You mentioned Larry Nasser, but there's allegations now the Whitecaps CEO just a short time ago speaking on the latest accusations of sexual misconduct involving a former coach of, of the women's affiliate uh, club with that team. You know, one thing that, that I, I know you're not going to speak on behalf of Theron Fleury, but, you know, you, you take a look at, at your experience and, and coming forward and you really blazed the trail there. You talk about how that experience ultimately nearly killed you. And you've told your story many times. Uh, Theo was, if I can say, you know, riding that line of almost killing himself publicly uh, in and out of the league substance abuse programs, obviously really struggling. I, I remember that, you know him getting in the scrap with with bouncers outside the strip club in Chicago. You remember with Phil Housley and Tyler Arneson, that was a big, I mean, Theo ultimately, I mean, his career ended really in a bit of a disastrous circumstance. Uh, for you to say the NHL never reached out to you, or I don't know about him, um, but the PA, I mean, the Players Association, I mean, the, the whole point of a union and I mean, we can get into this. We could talk about CTE and head injuries. We could talk about like if the PA's ever really had its focus in the right place. Uh, but the point of a union is to protect its members. And I'm gobsmacked that the NHLPA has never reached out to you. That to me is a, a fundamental misunderstanding of its mandate. Yeah, and I think, well, you know what? I mean, I don't, I don't seek uh, approval from either one of those organizations. Uh, we try to go about our work, Ryan, and and do do the best we can to reach those that we serve. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I I kind of see it. I, I feel it is it's odd. Um, you know, if you look at you know the issues that we represent, the work that we've done. You know, and I don't know any, like, I don't know, like, I, I know there's a few hockey players that have been in the Order of Canada. Like, I mean, if you look at a few recognitions we've got, we've got the Order of Canada, Order of Manitoba, Alberta Order of Excellence, the uh, Order of Hockey. Um, uh, we received, just entered into the uh, uh, Canada Sports Hall of Fame, received the Order of Sport in Canada, and I'll soon be in the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame. So, you know, I don't know of another... Uh, player that's maybe um, you know I mean Gretzky and but I mean received uh, accolades like that and going in as a builder 
you know, not, a, not so much as an athlete. I think, uh, you know, you would think that, uh, you know, you would at least get a note saying, Hey, you know, great work. Uh, very nice. Uh, you know, awesome. Good, good stuff. Sheldon glad that, uh, uh you were part of our organization at one time, uh, you know, but, uh, not, uh, that hasn't happened. And I think, and I think Ryan, even though I don't seek that, uh, I think that that is just a reflection on uh, that systemic nature around, you know, these types of issues. I still feel there's a, there's a sentiment, there's a, there's an undercurrent of uh, blame on Sheldon uh, within some people that I brought these issues forward uh, in hockey because I'm, ruining the game or something right and, you're, you're uh, making it you're making it awkward for other people and you probably should have just kept it to yourself and lived with it uh never mind what happens to the hundreds if not thousands of young for example junior hockey players that are also under the care of billets and coaches and right right is that the idea you should have just kept it to yourself toughed it out and, and, and you know the rest of potential victims be damned that's the idea well, I guess maybe, but I mean, you know, I think that's, that's what we're talking about. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, like this has been a systemic response and that's what we're, that's the shift that needs to happen in this league to get real change in hockey in general. And I think, you know, in minor hockey, you know, ac across this country, I think that, you know, we're, you know, I know lots of member partner organizations, you know, Alberta Hockey, Ontario Hockey. I mean, we work with all of them. It's mandatory training for coaches and parents. Now, you know, culture change takes time, but I feel it's happening. And I feel it's it's been embraced by these organizations as a priority within their organization. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, it cannot be dealt with in policies alone. And most organizations, the un... Uh, you know the 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 less the less forward thinking organizations, the ones that are you know bringing up bringing up the tail, uh, you know, are the ones that still have these issues in policy alone. And to me, these issues for real change to happen have to be shifted into a priority column, and that's where the NHL needs to get. This is not the policy said that what they needed to do in this report. They needed to act swiftly. Uh, and promptly to address a complaint when brought forward. Nobody did it, right? So policies in a 1-800 line isn't going to cut it until you can build the confidence around issues that carry a lot of fear. It's embedded in everything that you do within the league, and it's a priority from leadership. I mean, these issues and change happens in organizations with strong leadership, and that's what's lacking in this space right now is strong leadership in this area and a belief that this stuff is important. And until we get that, nothing's going to happen. Um, I wanted to ask you, well, I mean, there's a lot I want to ask you about, but Alan Walsh, uh, one of the more prominent agents and certainly one of the more outspoken agents in the league, when, had, had a Twitter thread just, just a short time ago uh, yesterday. He says, I'm hearing uh, that several NHL owners are very concerned and unhappy with Gary Bettman's leadership, with the commissioner's leadership. He says, I think even the owners realize it's time for change in the NHL and culture only changes from the top down. Walsh says it's time to fire Bettman. 
from the way that he's mismanaged horrific events in Chicago to refusing to acknowledge a link between traumatic brain injury and CTE for doing nothing to help retired players for calling the NHL a family for the Department of Player suspensions for the way the game is marketed for the lack of any coherent global strategy to turning his back on issues like painkiller ambient and toradol abuse for his lack of empathy and caring for his three lockouts and for his lies it's time for Gary to go what sense do you get with regards to the job security that Gary Bettman may enjoy and how optimistic might you be were he to be replaced right at the top? Well, I think, you know, I mean, if you look at, you know, if we look at Canada, I mean, we work with 650 corporations across this country, large corporations, government organizations, and these issues are a priority. So, you know, and, if, you know, and there is an expectation. There was a time, Ryan, when if you had any prevention programs or any, you know, anything other than a policy and a procedure around these types of issues, occlusion, diversity, you know, EID work, like, you know, sexual assault, I mean, that meant you had problems, but there's been a major shift in corporations. So if you look at the owners, they own corporations, and I'm sure that they are progressive and they're moving in this space. So when they look at how behind the NHL is as a league in this space where they could be leaders, I'm sure that that's very concerning to them because, you know, the progressive companies have been doing this work and made it a priority within their organization for a long time. And I don't buy the excuse that, oh, this was 10 years ago. This was 11 years ago. Well, we had been educating every single coach in this country, every single coach in the province of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, 70 sport organizations for 12 years before this incident happened. So I don't buy that this was a long time ago. I mean, we knew better and to know better is to do better. And there was a lack of action. And this is all about leadership. I mean, this incident happened because a lack of leadership lock stock and barrel end of story i mean we can't a player can't even go offside in a in a, in a game without it going back to the league so then you look at an incident like this and uh and the league didn't know about it i don't know well i mean you've got a lot of uh players this is this is a weird comment, but I want to I want to treat this like if you and I are out for coffee or beers, I would make a comment like this. And that is that, you know, people say you never want to meet your heroes because they're no doubt going to let you down. Um, I've been a Jonathan Taves guy for, for years. I've got the Hawks sweater. I've got a signed Taves stick. I've been, you know, he's was the captain of my fantasy team for a lot of years. He's been an athlete I've really admired. And he's faced a lot of fire uh, for this as well. The captain of the Chicago Blackhawks. He's going to the Hall of Fame. Everybody knows it. Uh, he claims he didn't know about this. Patrick Kane says he didn't know about it. Duncan Keith, now on the Oilers, says he didn't know about it. I mean, you want to talk about culture. You've been in NHL dressing rooms. You've been in junior dressing rooms. Uh, a Twitter account the other day pushed this photo out. And yeah, people are going to say, well, it was 10 years ago. It was 11 years ago. I mean, here's two you know, surefire first ballot Hall of Famers, Kane and Taves, together hoisting the cup in their dressing room in 2010. The Hawks have just beat... The Philadelphia Flyers, the Flyers had Hall of Famer Chris Pronger on the blue line. Look at that. The, the champagne's flying and you see the whiteboard behind where the coaches would draw up the matchups and you can see the Flyers D there. Chris Pronger named on the board and, and there it has in, in red marker. Chris Pronger is gay. Now, I know that 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago and for sure 30 years ago, people called things they didn't like gay and a lot of people were guilty of it. Me included. Language changes. 
But what does that picture tell you about the culture in the Hawks dressing room at that time? And how would you provide perspective on that present day in 2021? How much of this falls into the lap of the players when we talk about culture, in particular team captains? Well, I mean, I don't know the particulars for, you know, who, who knew and who didn't know, but I, I do know this is that um, players have a responsibility and they've got a huge responsibility, but I also think it's a part of the league's responsibility to make sure that the players are educated. I think that, you know, I think that the players are kept quite in the dark around all these issues. And I don't think that they're trained to the, to the, to the, to the level that they need to be. I mean, we need to empower the bystander and look at the players. I mean, we need everybody. If I look at this case, look at the magnitude of people that surrounded this case and we couldn't get one person to put their hand up to say, geez, you know what, we need to deal with this right now. Or, you know what, let's, we, better, we better follow the policies because the policies tell us that we need, to fo- we need to do this right now. So, you know, I think, you know, that the players have a huge responsibility in culture. Uh, but I also think that it goes to the leadership. And when it's not made a priority within an organization, your employees who are, i.e. the players, uh, aren't going to, they're just going to follow the leadership tone that's set, you know, and to me, you know, that's why I keep going back to leadership. And, you know, this has to be the leadership of the league and it has to be the leadership of the team. And it has to be, there has to be accountability and this has to be embedded. So that message is going down from the time you're drafted, from the time you're drafted, from the time you come to camp, to your AHL team, into the NHL team. Every employee that works at that organization need to be on the same page when it comes to this and it needs to be practiced. And, you know, what I mean by that is that, you know, we need to practice and continually make connections in this space to make sure we're always on the same page. We keep learning about it. This isn't the one hit wonder. We don't practice the power play on the first day of, of uh, the regular season and never touch it again, you know, for the 10 years that, that we're here. I mean, this has to be practiced. This is a practice. This is a taught skill. We need to shift the way that we understand these stuff so that, you know, if somebody writes up the word gay behind Chris Pronger's name in that locker room, somebody stands up and, and has that conversation and says, listen, you know what, this is inappropriate. This is not who we are. This is not what we do. And that's coming off. And that's a teachable moment. And I think that, you know, maybe we've moved beyond that as far as um, rights and wrongs. But the culture side of stuff, I don't know if we've moved beyond that. And I think that, you know, uh, until this is embedded, Ryan, in the in in all decisions that we make, and it's you know, and we stick to the guns and we don't waver, and you know, it's not going to change. And that is what I know about these issues. And when we see strong leadership in this space, when we see CEOs of corporations, you know, embracing this and saying, you know, this is who we're going to be, and this is what we're going to work towards. And it's going to take time, but we're committed. This stuff doesn't happen. And if it does happen, it's dealt with correctly. I'm not going to live in a panacea to think issues like this are never going to arise. But the, but what we need to be able to do is if they do arise, we can deal with it properly. Right, uh, Kyle Beach's story should never have got to this point. Kyle Beach should have been able to dis- disclose. It should have been handled properly. And if it was handled properly, we would never we would not be having this conversation today.
I mean, and obviously I know you, I mean, I can assume you'll agree with me that when it comes to changing culture, representation matters in a big, huge way as well. I mean, how huge was it for, for, for a young man, Luke Prokop, a, a top NHL prospect to come out as gay? I mean, this guy's a young man. This is, this is the type of thing I think it just shows. I hate to have to say, Sheldon, I think it shows great courage, uh, but it certainly shows a great degree of confidence. And I guarantee you that young LGBTQ 2S plus players are going to look at Luke Prokop and say it's possible to play pro hockey, to get drafted into the National Hockey League and to be yourself. That's big. And I also think it's probably worth mentioning that, you know, in so many ways as you wouldn't teach a hockey player you know to try to, to to give or receive a saucer pass or a you know to to unload a one-timer in the slot when they turn 19 they start to learn this when they're seven and eight and nine and ten culture i mean i'm I, i'm just a bit player i'm an assistant coach on my little guy's timbits team right now but the culture has to it doesn't start when you get to the show Right. Yeah. I mean, this this is something that I think uh, Canadians and, and, and hockey fans and for that matter, people around the world need to be paying attention to at all ages, at all levels. Well, absolutely. I mean. I think we've got you muted there by accident, Sheldon. We've got uh, Sam will work on it and we'll get that uh, figured out. We're talking to Sheldon Kennedy, a phenomenal conversation with a guy who's done incredible work. Uh, on this file, like he said, since uh, 1996, 1997, which which feels like ages ago, almost 15 years ago. Um, do we have him back, Sam? We're ready to rock. Sorry, Sheldon, we lost your audio for a second. There. I want to hand the mic back over to oh. you. Oh, am I am I back? We're all good. We can hear you loud oh, and clear. Good. Well, you know what? I think you're right. I mean, you know, this starts uh, from the time, uh, you know, your son or daughter puts their puts their skates on it's at Tim Bits and. You know, and I think I think what's happened is we we've done a lot of work in and around culture. I think in this space, and what's ha- happening is I think that uh, a lot of these players are coming up and they're moving up, uh, and that and then they get to you know the 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 ones that make it to the NHL find that uh, uh, that you know nothing's been done at that space. I think that uh, there's a lot more that can be done, obviously, Ryan. But I mean, this is from start to finish. And that's where I feel the NHL and the NHL teams and the communities can really um, be of huge value. I mean, the, their brand, they're looked up to, they're heroes in many people's eyes. And they're the ones that need to be really uh, embracing this culture and really help drive this culture from start to finish because they need to help build these young people so that by the time they get to their organization, you know, everybody's on the same page. And, you know, it just doesn't, we can't just start this in the NHL. I mean, this has to be, this has, this has to be, uh, this has to be embraced uh, from the time they, they put their skates on. But the NHL needs, they've never come down and helped junior hockey in this area. They've never helped minor hockey in this space. And they need to show leadership in that and, and really, uh, you know, and not just around sexual assault, Ryan. I'm talking about any human human issue here. You know, whether it be like uh, you know LGBTQ plus, like you know any of those those issues, it's concussions. Like we need to shift that culture so that there's a safety uh, and that there's a, a teaching and a safe place for people to come forward to be able to discuss, chat this out, get help if they needed, make change, and be able to move, be able to shift, be able to say, oh, like. The language we're using today is way different than what we started with 24 years ago. And and it's going to change in the next three years. It changes every year. Mm-hmm. These issues keep 
morphing as we learn more. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm with you on that. Last question for you, Sheldon. So appreciate your time. Uh, we were expecting to see a news conference yesterday. Uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins will be named in a lawsuit, the wife of a former coach of their minor league affiliate. I'm sure you've heard about this. They they delayed the news conference because they said they're processing new information, which could, could push this story even further into the forefront. Already uh, rumored to implicate Mario Lemieux, uh, now Minnesota Wild general manager Bill Guerin. What makes that particularly interesting is that Billy Guerin was supposed to take over for Stan Bowman. As the GM of Team USA, Bowman, of course, stepping down in the wake of the Blackhawks controversy. I mean, this has got everybody talking about hockey. I wanted to get you to respond to what Tara said to us yesterday. And ultimately, my question to you, Sheldon, is can hockey be fixed? But but briefly, here's what Tara Sloan had to say on Real Talk. This was yesterday. What they really need is an admission that they have um, made a ton of missteps, that their culture is broken and that they actually need some outside help. And I don't know if Gary Bettman is interested in doing that. Well, I mean, you've, you've teed up my next that question. That was uh, nice. Tara Sloan on the show yesterday. Can hockey be fixed? Are you optimistic, Sheldon? Yes, hockey can be fixed. I mean, you know, you know, and, and I got to give it to, uh, you know, I mean, uh, if I listened to the press conference yesterday and I saw how, you know, the impact that... Uh, you know, this is all had on the team owner, Mark Chipman yesterday. I mean, that, that hit him. And, uh, and I know that because I've talked to Mark and, and, you know, and, and, uh, and I told Mark, I support you and, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to help uh, them because he's committed to getting this right. And that's what we need. And I think, you know, if you look at the Pittsburgh situation, that's, that's an exact replica, different incidences, different people, but again, diff, it's the exact replica of the Blackhawks. Just try to sweep it under the carpet. Don't say nothing. And I don't know who's given these people advice, but they better you see, they better get somebody else because the way they're responding to these issues is archaic. And this is a systemic response to human issues. And I keep going back to that. And that is what has to shift. Society you know, we like society is in a set like they have really misplayed society's knowledge and care around these issues. Uh, and, and they've thought that they could sweep these under the carpet. They're just going to go away. And, you know, that just doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't happen anymore. Maybe, you know, in 1998 to 1985, they could do that. But around this space now and moving forward, um, if they aren't upfront with this stuff and transparent with these issues and, uh, you know, playing a leadership role in this space, uh, you know, I think they're going to be in trouble. But I think that if they can do that, I think that they can, you know, turn this wrong into a very good right. Look at the platform they have to help many, many, many people in all this area and do it. Do it. It's going to help you grow your game. And until they realize that, Employee wellness makes the game better, makes the team better, makes you win more, right? Until they realize that and recognize that, I think they're always going to they're always going to be under fire. Well, history will remember. I mean, you're already recognized as someone who's who's, uh, you know, made possible transformative change, Sheldon, uh, including 
having these difficult conversations. I want to say again on the record, it's not lost on me how you dig deep every single time somebody makes an interview request and you keep going back to this and talking about it. It shows remarkable courage and commitment. Let me leave you with this. It's feedback from an audience member who's watching us now live. This is Deborah who says Sheldon Kennedy is a great Canadian that will be in the same category as a warrior, any warrior for a cause. Much love to him. He is saving lives. Deborah says he's right up there in my mind with Terry Fox. I think that's the highest compliment you can pay. Well, thank you, Deborah. That's Sheldon Kennedy. You can find out more about what Sheldon's doing. Thanks, brother. uh, At respectgroupinc.com. He's the founder of the uh, not just respect group, which provides uh, empowerment and resources for people facing online abuse and bullying and harassment. Um, They do work with sports organizations, schools, uh, workplaces. Again, respectgroupinc.com. Sheldon's also co-founder of the Calgary Child Advocacy Center. And a member of so many halls of fame that you kind of lose track. The Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame, the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame. He's an officer of the uh, the order of uh, the, the hockey order of Canada. He's a member of the order of Canada. I mean, this guy has, is, is widely regarded and respected, and I'm grateful that he made time for us on the show. We're going to talk to Dr. Jody Carrington in just a moment. And we're going to be talking about trauma and uh, frontline workers and first responders. But it makes sense to touch on what we've just discussed with Sheldon. That's coming up in just a moment. My Jasper memories coming up. We're going to take a deep breath and and go out to the mountains too today, friends, because we know a lot of this is is heavy subject matter. Um, again, a great resource. Sam, is it possible to put that number up again on the screen? We recognize that these conversations are more difficult for some people than others because of, quite frankly, lived experience. Every single day you face, every morning you wake up, you demonstrate courage. The, the Canadian Resource Center for Victims of Crime, it's a toll-free call, one 877 Our friends at Westworld Computers want to remind you that that new iPhone 13 is out, including the iPhone 13 Pro Max. That is like the phone right now. Uh, They've had them in stock since they launched late last month, and you can get your hands on one right now either online at westworld.ca or you can go visit them in store. Uh, They've got all the distancing protocols in place. I was just in there the other day. Their team always ready to help out on the sales or the service side. You can book a service appointment online. Did you know? At westworld.ca, more than 40 years, their team has been independently operating as your Apple experts. They've also got that Apple Watch Series 7. You can buy it now, again, online or in store. Our friends at Grand Dog Essentials, I oftentimes tell you, what more can I say other than we feed our dogs Grand Dog Essentials quality raw food. Our furry four-legged family members eat the quality raw food from Grand Dog Essentials, but it's not just the food. I mean, they've got some other amazing, amazing uh, supplements that people are looking to. Like, what about the healing power of mushrooms? They've got this immunity supplement at granddog.ca. It's it's called, uh, you know, I mean, basically works together to enhance a dog's immune system, a blend of seven different mushrooms. Fascinating stuff. And turkey tail. Turkey tail is meant for dogs who suffer from severe immune challenges like cancer, 
Maybe your dog is on an immune suppressant medication. Maybe has a urinary tract infection, a UTI. That, that happens with dogs. Turkey tail can help reduce tumor sizes and improve immune response in cancer patients. You can find out more, all the details at granddog.ca. If you use the promo code REALTALK, they'll take 10% off your first order. They deliver to your door in Edmonton, Calgary, and Central Alberta on a weekly basis. Make sure you tell them that Real Talk sent you. Dr. Jody Carrington is a great friend of this show. It's been way too long since she's been here with us, so we're excited to have her here today, a psychologist, a speaker, an author. Uh, She works in the field of trauma, relationships, and recovery, has done for more than 15 years, uh, formerly at the Alberta Children's Hospital in the inpatient and day treatment units. You may have heard about her book, Kids These Days. It's a real pleasure to welcome back to the program. They call her Dr. Jody. Thanks for making time for us this morning. Ryan friggin' Jesperson, <laughs> what's up, you handsome son of a gun? I always feel like it's like it's like right before the big auto races on Sunday. Before I talk to you, I like pull on my helmet, do up the chin strap, the five point seatbelt goes on, and let's go. Let's go. Let's, let's go. go. Oh, Sheldon Kennedy, let's talk about that rock star right now. Right? Wow. Hmm. Come on. You know, I'm a huge fan of hockey. I grew up in Viking, Alberta, Canada, home of the Seven Sutter Brothers. Um, There's so much that's unfolding in there right now when we talk about trauma and when you don't talk about hard things. Listen, anxiety, depression, PTSD won't kill you, but not talking about it might. Hmm. And in sport, uh, this is a time. This is a time where we have to start to pull back uh, the layers. And uh, as you know, I mean, I have a huge love of first responders and, you know, people like those who serve in the advocacy center uh, doing this work of police, fire, EMS, hanging on to trauma because we all have it. I haven't met one single person in my 20 year career who hasn't experienced some form of trauma. How do you, how does trauma, like how did, how does something qualify as trauma? Because I think mm. like, you know, with regards to first responders, Um, I think even, you know, when we look back and I think we're going to need the luxury of time uh, before we can truly process these couple of years. Right. The the covid era. Uh, You know, my little guy was talking to Wyatt yesterday and he was like, Dad, he's like, the sickness has been here from when I was four to when I'm six. And I kind of like in a way, I just I don't know. It just it wasn't like it just hit me when he said that. It's like there's little ones that basically their entire awareness on planet Earth, his entire set of memories doesn't really remember being three. His entire memories are based on the sickness. I mean, there's going to be paramedics. There's going to be respiratory techs, ICU nurses. I mean, there's going to be fast food workers and cab drivers that are going to look back on these two years and go, I like it's impacting them in a way, but when does it qualify as trauma? Mm, I love that question. So I've spent a lot of time working with uh, police officers and um, I really, I love trauma. It's certainly, it makes me really popular at parties, but it's a, it's such a sexy word right now. And so many people in school divisions want to be trauma informed. We want to make sure we're addressing trauma. Here's the issue. There's, there's checklists that have been created about if you experience these things, this means you've experienced trauma. Here's the hardest thing about it. It is so difficult to define because it's different for everybody. But here's the thing that that always makes sense to me. Trauma is any experience encoded in terror. Full stop. Mm. 
So that could be something very different than you and me. Imagine you go to a scene and I say this to police officers all the time. We go to a bus accident together. You come to the scene first. You're first on scene. You've got no backup. You don't have a, a fucking clue about what's happening. <laughs> you're encoding it in terror, right? You feel ill-equipped. You feel like you're failing everybody. Now, two minutes later, I come on scene. I am the commanding officer. I have everything under control. I know the plan. I got this baby under here. I got this guy under here. We come back. I'm okay because I didn't encode that scene. Now, were there horrific things, smells, sights? Yes, but I didn't necessarily encode it in terror. And so what I do with that after depends very differently on how I process that. My job is to go into fight or flight in that moment because I can't process everything. I can't be attending to detail. I can't be like, oh shit, look at his wedding ring. Or, oh, I remember those jammies look like my son's. I need you to go into fight or flight and go into that process. The issue is what do we do after? Mm. And in this heightened state of arousal as a globe that we've been in, because here's the three components, ingredients, if you will, of being in a heightened state of arousal. Uh, it, it's unpredictable, there's fear, and there's no end in sight. If I see the most dysregulated kids I've ever seen, uncertainty, fear, and no end in sight means that you'll be dysregulated, okay? If I think about the kids that I've seen the worst, like they're flipping tables, telling you to F off, they're, you know, like you see, you imagine somebody in a bar fight. Uncertainty, fear, and no end in sight, they don't know how it's going to end, tends to make people the most uh, dysregulated. Think about the three components of a global pandemic, Uncertainty, fear, and no end in sight. As a globe, mm -hmm. we've been in a heightened state of arousal, right? So, you know, what does that mean when a kid has just been in a temper tantrum? Are they, where's their empathy? Are they irritable? Are they exhausted? Are they chippy? Where's their innovation? Where's their creativity? So we're looking at each other right now going like, you're an asshole. No, you're an asshole. I, like, uh. Divorce has increased by 33% in this country. Over this time last year, is that true? Child maltreat yes. Wow. So it was already it was numbers. already one in two marriages ending in divorce, and now that's up by thirty three percent. I'm not going to do the math, but that's even more. Do not let's. We love Carrie. We love Carrie. Oh, We're staying together. Not everything and has to be personal, Doc. <laughs> But again, it's like this, this idea, right? We're all in this heightened state of arousal. And so the answer for me is we can sit in it. And, and of course, this is a time when things like the NHL, the, the issues that we haven't talked about for a long time are coming out. Of course, this is a time where everybody's unpredictable and there's lots of big emotions in the world. We would expect it. So the question is then what do we do about it? You can't address what you don't acknowledge. Full stop. And if we keep sweeping things under that, because it's so hard to hang on to pain and missteps and things where we have fucked it up. And I'd rather just not talk about it. When we avoid it, it'll eat you from the inside out. It'll make you pay with interest. And so now it's starting to create spaces on shows like yours, platforms like mine that say, once we'd set a time, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Because you can start to address it when you acknowledge it. Hmm. Um, I should mention that you've got this uh, event going on. It's like a day long online event coming up this Friday. So a couple of days from now on November 5th called Hello Hero. Uh, can you tell us what this is all about? Oh, my gosh. 
So for a long time, when I sit in this office and I speak to police officers and firefighters and military and tow truck drivers that say like, I wish there was some place where we could talk about it. I wish there was some place where we could start to shed light on how difficult it is to hold people in their most dysregulated spaces. I mean, that's why we need first responders, because there will be times when all of us get dysregulated and we need somebody to walk us home. We need somebody to walk us through it. That is the definition of a police officer, a firefighter, an EMT, a paramedic, a military. This is what I need you. When everybody's dysregulated, I need you to walk home. Okay, so the question is, who does the walking for you? If you're going to hold people's hard stuff, if you're going to be okay, if you're going to continue to serve, I need to give you a place to do that. Now, many first responder cultures, in fact, I don't know one that isn't, is not built on a comfort of talking about it right? We're tough. Spit on it. Boys don't cry. Huh? So that's going to fuck you up. Yeah. Eventually. And now we see in many of these organizations, right? Particularly, I mean, let's think about it in, in hockey, we just talked about it. There's men, there's all of these conversations about no, 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 no. We're good. We're good. We're good until we aren't. And in our first responder organizations, including nurses, physicians, firefighters, 911 operators, there's a significantly increasing rate of suicide. There is a massive rate of burnout, and particularly in this season where the world has been dysregulated, we've asked them to step up even more because we need you to walk us home. If the calls for domestic violence are increasing, guess who's going to those calls? Our first responders. Yeah. So what do we do to hold them? So we created this day as one small effort. I mean, I have no delusions of grandeur that we can change culture significantly in my lifetime. But as a psychologist who loves first responders and has, I was a civilian member with the RCMP for two years. I, how can we create a space, a safe place? to start these conversations. Hang on a second, though, because you're you're saying you don't, and I want to make sure that I understand completely what you're saying. Did you just say you don't believe that we can change culture significantly within our lifetime? Nope. Listen, we, we have this massive belief, right, that we need things to be remarkably different. And when they're not tomorrow, we feel like we're failing. Nothing's changing. And we get frustrated. So then when we get frustrated, we start to tell people how to do it. We forget we need to show them. So let's debunk this idea that we can do anything massive and just do the next best right kind thing. Let's do that. Can we do that together? Can we sit down and have a coffee about it? Can we can we start to have these conversations? Can we gather and say, gosh, does this sound like you? Does this feel like that for you? Okay, one next right kind thing. Because when we start to uncover, for example, you and I talked about our indigenous peoples in this country and all they've taught us over the last six months. When you start to look at the atrocities, we start to get so mad. And what are we doing? What's happening? We need to do things. Let's do this tomorrow. Yes, absolutely. And how do we do the next best right kind thing? Mm. Because when we stay in this place of heightened arousal and anger, we have no capacity for empathy kindness and compassion, which is exactly what we fucking need right now. Hmm. Um, we're getting amazing feedback, which happens every single time you're here, Doc, on our live chat. I, I mean, Scarlett right now is is talking about her ex-husband and basically said, you know, like he, he was a Mountie, worked for him. She says he's just is a Mountie rather. And he's finally addressing his trauma from the work he's done. Uh, she says his undoing is pretty heavy. Um, you know, I, I was talking to a friend yesterday. I don't, uh, he, he, I didn't ask him if I could share. I won't identify him. I don't think it's, I don't know if he'd mind or not, but he, he heard you were coming on the show and he's like, he's like, this is must, must tune. He's a retired fireman. 
he's he's doing something else now and he just slipped into he he just slipped into a story i don't even think consciously i i, I said i'm talking trauma tomorrow with dr jody he goes oh i gotta make sure i and then he just slipped into this story of an accident scene and just sort of casually and candidly i'm not even going to tell the story on the air because it's so shocking uh and it's not my story to tell but what he encountered there has seared itself into my imagination it's seared itself into his memory click but he just there's probably a hundred of those stories that he could tell and he just sort of was saying it's so matter of fact like it's so important for first responders to be able to unpack this stuff and i thought gosh as i'm listening to him say that i'm thinking you are just on another level i mean what we expect from our and i want to talk to you about educators and we've talked about frontline medical workers our first responders i mean they're just it's almost like they need to be wired differently. Like, I don't think the average person, I think if I showed up, I mean, you reference this, you, you say, you know, they come into a scene, maybe it's a carbon monoxide poisoning or a fire and they see a child whose pajamas remind them of their child. And if I had one of those experiences, one, I'd be out. I don't think I have what it takes. And I don't think that society writ large can even relate to the challenges that a lot of people have in their jobs the question is how can we support the people that are encountering these types of trauma in some circumstances jody like three or four times a week oh uh, three or four times a call yeah so you think about a 911 operator i mean that's their job right every one of those circumstances is when the phone rings that's what happens and here's the deal we are wired to do hard things you and me are wired to do all of those things. And it's remarkable. I mean, we think about the people who've come before us. What are some things that people have seen? You know, what are some things that people have heard and held? Can we do it? Yes. And I say this to any nurse, physician, firefighter, police officer who will listen to me. Can you do this stuff? Oh my gosh, you're, you're a hero. This is why we need to look after you. But in order, we are also wired for connection. And the first thing that trauma does is it disconnects us by way of protection. It's really sort of smart from a primitive perspective. But if we want to heal, we have to get reconnected. And there's no culture. There's no safety in the culture to do that. You should be strong. You should handle it. And I want to shift that narrative just slightly to be able to say, yes, we can do all of these things. You can have a beautiful life at the end of a beautiful career where you've changed lives every single day. It is it is a remarkable career to, to think that you can step in every day and not only just change a life, but save it. What, what a remarkable opportunity if that is something that is your calling and how do I get you through that? Listen, the answer is simply comes back to what, you know, we've talked about from our indigenous peoples for so long. It's, it really comes back to acknowledgement. How do I remind you that you're amazing? You know, I, one of my favorite hockey coaches said this, I can get a kid to skate through walls for me when I know the name of his dog. Hmm. When you are acknowledged, you will rise. So what can we do as you and me? Oh my gosh, you stop by a detachment this week. If you have the opportunity, you write a note on a piece of paper and you tuck it under a PC, a police car's uh, windshield wiper and say, I just want to thank you. You're amazing. Mm. I see how hard this must be. What happens to you if you were to come out of, you know, the studio today, the car is at the, you know, you're, you've been there, you're pouring your heart and soul into all these hard, heavy topics. And somebody said, listen, Ryan, I listened today. I just want you to know you're amazing. I think you're, you're showing your son how you do hard things. And you are reminding me that I need to be a good man. What happens to you? What well, happens? It, it, and I know that it happens to you, too. People come up. They always uh, preface it by saying, I'm sorry to interrupt. I always say that's not a thing. Don't worry about it. 
uh, and then they'll say, here's what Real Talk did for me or here's what Real Talk does for me. Mm -hmm. And I always say to them, based on this children's book, I say, you have just filled my bucket. Like that is that is why feedback like that is why we do this. So how often do we do that for our first responders? Yeah. In the moment, it, we're in a state of crisis. And so rarely, once you've just put my baby in an ambulance or once you've just reset my broken leg or once you've just put out my house fire, do I have the wherewithal to turn to you and say, like, thank you so much? So there's so much lack of acknowledgement that happens. And it has to be genuine because when you're acknowledged, you will rise. So even shifting that, building that into the culture, not even of us as the general public doing that to them, but doing that within their systems. Do you know how often they don't say this to each other? You're amazing. You should read our live chat right now. <laughs> this is like, I keep saying this. We're almost a year into this. We're almost a year into Real Talk, and I still am trying to figure out what's happening in our live chat because it's got to be the friendliest, most empathetic, most gracious corner of the Internet. Not all days. I know that the live chat, they've been doing some introspection. They've been, they were called out by a guy by the name of Doggo the other day, and he didn't feel very welcomed. He didn't feel like his perspective was respected, and uh, I really appreciated the introspection of our live chat. I'm talking to them right now, Doc, obviously, and I know whoever watches this on YouTube later will be able to read that chat but right now they're telling each other how valued they are how amazing they think they are these are people that gather in community you have the exact same thing every morning you go you go live and i know that you have the exact same thing where community gathers together i mean it's really remarkable rose says you know on the first responders front she says i worked for the rural detachment uh, a, a rural detachment for the rcmp in saskatchewan says i had to type up accident reports and said, oftentimes that would involve me holding back the tears. Uh, there's people that we don't even think of in their line of work that are encountering this type of thing. Jill left a comment that I wanted to get to because it tees up an email. Um, he says, I, he says, my wife's an elementary school teacher. I've never seen her so anxious, uh, not in her entire career. Uh, she has very little support and she's always fearful that one of her kids is going to get COVID and get severely sick. Now, I mentioned, Doc, that you're the author of Kids These Days. And when Jillian, one of our audience members, heard that you were on the show, she sent me an email. Uh, it's going to take me a minute to read it. But, I, but, but this is really important stuff. Uh, this is from a teacher. Uh, Jillian says, I'm both excited and scared to hear from Dr. Jody Carrington. I find she makes me confront issues that I'd rather try to hide from. She says, I'm, I'm currently reading her books. I started with teachers these days because I need hope. The job of being a teacher was already huge. I know it's important, uh, certainly challenging before COVID, but now part of me thinks it's impossible. And so I read Dr. Jody to remind myself that I can do it and that I can learn how to prioritize. She says, I teach math and science. I, I get along pretty great with my students. There's lots of love, mutual respect, but I was never trained to heal kids' souls. I used to have a few students dealing with trauma and I, and I could do like just a little bit of research or attend a workshop or, or get together what I needed to do to help that kid. And voila, there'd be one kid supported. But now with COVID, they all have trauma and I don't know how to help them. She says, I'm currently on mat leave. So I'm using this time to try to prepare for for I don't know. I don't even know what to expect as each school year since the pandemic started has been so different. Dr. Jody's book is teaching me that every little bit helps and I don't have to do everything perfectly to have an impact. And I'm grateful for that. I believe I can at least attempt the seemingly impossible task of healing all these children and doing all the things 
But I have two questions, says Jillian. Number one, in the long term, should we be looking to defund education? Maybe stop expecting teachers to keep doing it all? We need school counselors and psychologists and nurses back on site. She says, here's one real life example. How does a teacher do everything they need to do and also remember to help the eight-year-old check their blood sugar level before every recess? Why is that eight-year-old's medical care in the hands of an overwhelmed teacher? And number two, Dr. Jody highlights how relationships and healing are the most important things. She's right, but here's the problem. I have 13 chapters of math to teach every year and a society that cares more about grades than if the kids are all right and I don't know how to reconcile this anymore. Can Dr. Jody please write a follow-up? Parents these days. She says, that's where I'm at. She says, I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. One love. That from Jillian. Hi, Jillian. Two things. Next best right kind thing. All right. You don't need any more training. Listen to me. Jillian and everybody else who's listening, watching, look at me. If you're driving, don't look at me, but just... Listen, you do not need anything else, any other training, anything else in this moment to heal this world, to reconnect the disconnected. All we need from each other is eye contact. All we need from each other is the next best right kind thing. And you give the best you can with what you got on any given day. Some days you won't even have a fucking bra on. That's enough. Because all we can ask is that you give us what you got. Yes, we need more counselors, nurses. We need to shift this idea of mental health. Because listen, in a society where outcomes matter, it doesn't matter if you have the finest pedagogy in place. Kids can't learn when they're dysregulated. It must take precedence. And so we can't start at the top. I've learned this many times in my career. I've tried to start at the top of um, uh, education hierarchies, talk to the big shooters, talk to the big shooters in police and fire. It takes too long. We're going to start with those of us, you and me, on the ground every day who do the holy work of hanging on to kids and dysregulated people and families. What we do is mental health work because what we do, the only thing that heals is relationship. Now, it doesn't matter, Ryan, what you say, particularly on any show that you do for today or for the rest of your career. It's how you make people feel that matters. Now, that sounds cliche, but I will tell you, you cannot trump relationship. We can automate many fucking things. But what we need to know as human beings, we are wired for connection. Neuro, psychologically, listen, what happens is from a physiological perspective, you and I sitting in the same room, our cortisol drops, our oxytocin and our dopamine increase. Your only job is to show up to the best of your capacity for the people in your family, for your staff, then the people you serve in that order. You be kind and don't tolerate bullshit. At the end of the day, you must do it in that way again and again and again. Our job on this planet is just walk people home. Ram Dass said this, we're just here walking each other home. Give me the best you got today and it is more than enough. You have everything you need in this moment. I, uh, when we're lucky enough to get out to the uh, one of the family farms uh, outside Middle Lake, Saskatchewan, where my mother-in-law, Deb Skelton, we walk in the door of this beautiful farmhouse. She's a stalker. She is a Dr. Jody stalker. She okay? is a huge fan of yours. And when I, I know. when I walk in the front door of the house right there, they, they have it framed, this message. We're just walking each other home. Oh, Deb, I love you. She loves you too, friend. Um, 
I want to read you a couple comments before we say I know your time is valuable and we got a bunch going on here, but like this is resonating with people. Tracy says, you know, I learned from a friend in Pakistan about the gratitude challenge. We take 20 minutes every day to send a positive message to people who make a difference in our lives. Tracy says it's so good for the soul. Chad says I've been delivering coffee cards to different departments in the hospital and, and I can't express in words just how impactful those five dollar coffee cards have been to people these are small expressions that go a long way and they don't even need a monetary value in fact the research around this is really amazing when you acknowledge your staff zero to two times a year which is what we typically do turnover is 27.2 percent when you acknowledge or appreciate your staff 12 or more times a year without a monetary value a note on their car a high chew at their desk turnover drops to below two percent we are wired for connection and it's never a one-shot deal. Why do we do land acknowledgements again and again and again? Because you never, it's not an end game. You and I need to know we matter. Do not ever forget your power in simply acknowledging each other who we're walking through this life with. You can check out more about uh, Dr. Jody Carrington's Hello Hero initiative. That's coming up oh. this Friday, November 5th. Please Just join us. Go to Dr. Jody Carrington. Mm -hmm. Dot com and you can find all the details there. How about this? I'll leave you with this comment from Mark B in SLC. That's Mark B who listens in from Salt Lake City, Utah. He says, I always feel a little better when Jody's on the show. How's that? Oh, I love it. Thank you, Rye. Thanks, Doc. It's great to see you. Always an honor. Always appreciate your perspective. That's Dr. Jody Carrington. Uh, just does an absolutely amazing job. You can let us know what you think about this. Uh, Jillian followed up, by the way, and I'm so grateful for her email. She says that that's the thing, though, with us teachers. It's the biggest problem with teachers is we never, ever think that we're enough. Unbelievable stuff. Let your kids teach her. Maybe let your former teacher. What about this? Like, I've always talked. People ask the question now that that I'm like old as <laughs> You're like who's your favorite teacher and i'm now to the point where i'm like i gotta track these teachers down mm. you know because it's like we're talking like 30 years ago but these are the teachers that i would i would, i i bet you even if they're not teaching anymore wouldn't that be cool to hear from a former student who's your not who's the one that's like pops to the top bruce robertson boom don't even have to think about it and there were other amazing ones like i have some university professors you know what it was for me though it was uh, in a lot of ways uh what they brought out in me not just even in that moment but mm. later mm. like i was a bit of a i was never like a real i wasn't a troublemaker in the sense of like like i was like beating kids up and starting things on fire and stealing and like sort of being a jerk but i was a troublemaker in the sense that i was very social very chatty always wisecracking always like i was just you know like the, the type of like the teachers would just be like my report card every single year by the way my parents passed this along to me, I don't know, a year or two ago, a, a, like a manila envelope uh -huh. with all the report cards. And I went through them for like a year, for like an hour, probably through the years. Hilarious, but probably not hilarious at the time for the teachers. And it starts in kindergarten with Miss Donna McCurdy. And then it went all the way through to Margie Hassa in grade one. And I remember all the teachers all the way. Th and they would say, Ryan has so much potential. <laughs> If he could only focus that sort of a thing, you know, the, the, that was always it. Mm. But Bruce, like Mr. Robertson, uh, just brought something out, which was like the benefit of the doubt. He was always hilarious, but never like you wouldn't cross him. You know, those teachers that are like mm -hmm. if he needed to drop the hammer, he could. 
but but I, I just think of how the, the way that he would encourage me. I remember I put a lot of work into a report. Uh, it was for social studies in grade eight. And I did a report on the country of Brazil. Um, ultimately led 20 years later to me traveling Brazil and falling in love with Brazil. It's, a, it's an amazing country. But I remember he get, he was I was always the kid that like if, if I applied myself, I could do OK, but I really didn't. And so if you look at like my high school grades, I mean, it barely got into university. I got 58 percent in math 30. I mean, like I struggled in course. But if I tried, I'd do well. And I put a lot into that report in Brazil. And I remember, I mean, this is grade eight. What was I, 13 or 12 or something like that? I remember now. 13, 14. I got an A plus. And it was the first A plus I'd seen in a long time. And and, and it was a reward for the hard work I put in. But it was his comments and his encouragement. that was like, see, see, you know, and that's I remember that 30 years later. It's remarkable. Who was your favorite teacher? Does one immediately come to mind? Oh, boy. Um, I, I, to, to your point, the idea of junior high, junior high to me, those were when my big, like there's Mr. Capstick and there's Madame Moquin or Madame Dubé, depending on. Um, were you in French immersion? No, I wasn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> I can only speak un petit peu. Yeah. That, that's it. That's my extent of my French right And there. what was it about those favorites? Uh, they saw me. Mm. They, I, I struggled in junior high, um, just, you know, with the transition from elementary to junior high and, um, trying to figure out what friend groups were and who I could trust and all that jazz. And, um, yeah, they just, they just made space and time. And I guess also Madame Ouellette, now that I'm thinking about it, she was my math teacher and it was the one year I was really good at math was when she took the time to teach me and, and, um, figure out what my learning technique was or lack thereof when it came to math so just being seen junior really. high that's huge being seen huge. junior high is such a tough Ugh. oh man Ugh. This is, but the, you know listen i mean like people right now like the watcher you never know like what happens if one of these teachers is, is listening to this podcast later in the day or is streaming us live right now like, like mr graf in innisfail the watcher has named you as their favorite teacher uh, what about this? I mean, you know, Ashley's letting us know about Miss Miska in grade one at John Barnett Elementary. Uh, Miss McPherson is Miranda's favorite teacher. Strategies, a strategies teacher. Strategies at Lindsay Thurber in Red Deer. I can't I can't talk about Lindsay Thurber in Red Deer. They were the <sighs> athletic rivalries. I was at Henry Wisewood in Calgary when every time we would play Lindsay Thurber, I mean, I want to say every time we'd beat up on Lindsey Thurber's basketball team, but but that wasn't always the case because you'd always be like, really, like a team from Red Deer is going to beat the big, Red Deer. the big Calgary High School, and then they would just like stomp us. It was never fun. Yeah, I mean, in in my school there was the uh, Scona Harry Ainley. Yeah, um, everyone's got rivalry. their high school rivalries. Ugh, Ainley, and then you hear, in, and then you become friends like in your adult life with someone that's an alum from that high school, and you kind of are secretly like. I, well, say, I like, say it outright. I'm like, yeah, oh, you're, gross. You're, you're like, but you're, you're actually not bad for someone from that school. Right. You know what I mean? Sam, I, I, and I always I always hesitate to do this because Sam's working hard behind the scenes, lining up her next guest and getting everything ready. But do you immediately like when you say favorite teacher or best teacher you ever had? Is there one name that immediately comes to mind? Rick Michelin, Tim Cusack. Boom. What was it about them? Uh, Michelin is a band teacher and he was also a chemistry teacher and he was just a, a sort of a, a jovial, relatable guy. I mean, I loved band. That was sort of my, what did you play? Place. Trombone. Trombone. Yep. Uh, why are you laughing? Sarah, Sarah's why are you just laughing? losing it on this. What's so funny about trombone? I just love that Sam's like, I was a band geek yeah, and I was uh, a band geek too, Sam. Yeah, exactly. Were, did you, were you not in band? Uh, no. Oh, <laughs> 
who's the geek now? <laughs> no, I, um, no. Okay, trombone. <laughs> trombone in my, is one of the more, it's it's kind of funny. It's like uh, you, you sort of certain, it's, I don't remember that, like the dynamic, what I remember, I don't know about your experience, but it was always like the trombone always seemed to be like the students that would play trombone were a little bit like you, Sam, like a little bit like, and that's a, con- no, it's a compliment. It's a compliment. It's like the students that went on to be like engineers and they were good at math and like, right. For people Oddly that know enough, yeah. Like you have to think about it. Right? And then like the kids that played the saxophone were like the cool kids. And like, the, you know, the kids that played the flute were like a little bit more organized and probably more well behaved. Like you didn't have like a real rebel playing the flute. Well, it's like, you know, you think about a high school band class, like the, the back row is the brass players. It's yes. your trumpets, your trombones, the party your baritones. Yeah, yeah. And, and we were a bunch of nerds back there. Like, <laughs> honestly, now that I think about it, the brass section was always the nerds. But you need some nerds in a band. Yeah. <laughs> like, you need people that are like, we're actually going to like stay on cue and like pay attention to what the conductor has to say, right? Because you've always, you've got the hooligans in the band too. The key is you got to have the hooligans on the instruments that are more difficult to notice, mm-hmm. right? You need to have the, the sort of like the tactical performers playing like you play like the oboe. Yeah. You can't have like a jokester playing the big bass drum. The bass drum is driving the tuba. The tuba is driving the brass. The brass is dri- let's be honest. The brass drives everything. Let's be honest. Does. That's uh, true. Yeah. Well, you can let us know about your favorite teacher. Maybe we'll do like a big shout out to teachers. Um, Jen says, I feel like I was a party animal and the popular girl playing the flute. All right, Jen. There's an exception to every, you know, uh, Kim was played alto clarinet. You know, we should do. What about this from Mark? Who says, Mark says, when I was playing band in high school, I was in the band in high school. It was the best time of my life. He says, I sat between in band my current fiance and journalist Sandy Garasino. Mark, a star studded front line in Mark's band. Troy says that the trumpet players were always the cocky ones. (laughs) I actually 100% agree with that. Jay Bell says our trumpet section was all class clowns. 100%. Uh, some random guy says, I have a friend who is the only French horn player for two different grades because one of them didn't have a French horn at all. French horn. No, French horn is a beautiful instrument. Beautiful instrument. But, but if you need to bury, <laughs> bury somebody that's not very good at playing, French horn is a great one because you cannot hear a French horn over like trumpets and baritones and saxophones. Do you know how you make any instrument sound like a French horn? Huh? You stick your hand in the bell and play wrong notes. Yeah. <laughs> little, shade. Hey, little band joke for you there. A little shade little over band there. Joke for from you Brooks. There. All right. Yeah. Okay. Oh uh, Kim says, "Is Jespo going to suggest we start an orchestra? The real ta- the the real orchestra, the real play. What would we call real? Oh, the play? real orchestra. Real the real orchestra. Keeping it real since 2021. I guess so. Maybe." I don't know if I have the patience. I think of my band teacher. It was Ralph Carter. Bless him. I was going to say bless his soul, but he's, do you say that when someone's, he's still alive. <laughs> like when did he, but he would like Ralph It was, that's another guy. If I saw him right now, I would just want to give him a huge hug. I don't know if he'd want it. I don't know if he's healed from me yet. We, we would do horrible things like not horrible, like horrible, horrible, but horrible in the sense of like, I would look over to my buddy who would be like a trombone player. I'm playing trumpet at the time or baritone. I went back and forth. Very versatile. Yeah. And, um, and, and we'd be like, or like a saxophone. And we'd be like, you want to switch scores? Like you want to switch music? And then like the saxophone would play the trumpet part. The trumpet would play the saxophone. You're wild, It's just Jesper. like wild and crazy. You're just such a wild but, and crazy but Ralph guy. Would be, and he had like the, what do you call like the sticks? Like the conductor sticks? And he would just, and he would be like banging it and it would 
like launch it and he would just and he would like hold his head and then he would bring himself back to a point where he could calm down again but like never fully snapped and he had 13 and 14 and 15 year old I'm, I'm trying to think of like what does kevin McAllister's dad call him in home alone way to go you little jerk right you remember that scene in home alone ralph carter had a bunch of little jerks me included trying to set him off and we never fully succeeded and now looking back we owe that guy 15 dinners out we owe that we probably owe that guy a trip to maui mm-hmm. if we're being honest right now so god bless teachers shalane says my son wants to play an instrument and he's having trouble picking i'm taking notes right now i'm not sure if this is the proper conversation <laughs> to provide context of what you want your kid to play that's really cool that their their child wants to actually play because i I didn't think that I would be good at it, so I didn't do it, and I regret it. Yeah. Like, I really wish I could play an instrument, and I can't. Yeah. My brothers kept up his piano playing. We all took piano lessons as kids, and and that's something I just so wish I could still do. Never too late. Never too late. Every Wednesday, it is our absolute pleasure, uh, in partnership with the team at Tourism Jasper, to, to take a break from all the heavy stuff. You know, the, the real talk. I mean, it, it happens. It's necessary. It's important. But want to get out to the mountains and take that proverbial fresh breath of mountain air in partnership with Tourism Jasper. We're proud to present My Jasper Memories. And today, uh, as we lead up to, uh, we're a week and a day away from November 11th. And we want to remind you about the amazing history and the significance of Remembrance Day. When it comes to Jasper National Park, you know, many people wouldn't guess that Jasper has as many connections to the world wars as it does. Um, There's Project Habakkuk, which we talked about in a past Real Talk, My Jasper Memories segment. You can always find those at jasper.travel slash Real Talk. You can go way back in the archives and learn so much more about one of our favorite places on the planet. You know, the tallest mountain visible from town, Mount Edith Cavell, is actually named after a heroic war nurse it's a a, a stunning stunning view the highways even within jasper did you know they were partly built by prisoners of war and people in local internment camps during parts of world war one there's so much to learn about the significance of jasper and past war efforts so every november 11th the community of jasper and of course the rest of the country remembers the sacrifices made by veterans in service to their country and this year Uh, Jasper is expanding this special period of remembrance. As a matter of fact, it's begun already as of November 1st, all the way through to the 15th. And Jasper is inviting veterans and their families and everybody else to take part in the Veterans Appreciation Event. It's been created and coordinated to show support for our military veterans. They're calling it Vet Fest. And it will include events and activities, dining opportunities throughout town with a lot of deals and discounts. So if you're considering a trip out to the mountains, here are a few events to add to your itinerary. November 5th, that's coming up this Friday. It's No Stone Left Alone, which is an amazing youth remembrance program. Coming up on November 8th, Indigenous Veterans Day, including a commemoration event at the Jasper Royal Canadian Legion and Cenotaph. We're going to celebrate women veterans on November 9th, paying tribute to, yes, Edith Cavell, and women veterans alike. It'll include a a coffee and cocktail reception uh, with guest speaker Louise Abdu, who's an advocate for veterans' mental health. 
You can learn more about that ladies only event online. And then of course, November 11th, the Remembrance Day ceremony and subsequent programming. The Royal Canadian Artillery Band will perform at two o'clock, two in the afternoon. Uh, They'll be in London playing for Queen Elizabeth before they touch down in Jasper. What an amazing experience that will be. And then on November 13th, the Veterans Trade Show. Uh, You can learn more online about this showcase event supporting veterans, businesses, and then the second annual Jasper Legion Mass Gala, also on the 13th. Through November 4th to 14th, that's tomorrow through the 14th, the We Have Not Forgotten exhibit. That's the Jasper Yellowhead Museum and Archives, a gold mine of historical keepsakes and stories. Uh, a special exhibi- exhibition will focus on the men and women of Jasper who have sacrificed so much to help build what we have and what we know today. You can find all of the details online, including these specific events I've mentioned at jaspervetfest.com. And of course, you can find out more about past My Jasper Memories by checking out jasper.travel slash realtalk. Every week when we take you out to Jasper, you have an opportunity to share photos, videos, stories that have been submitted by real talkers. Haven't missed a week yet. You step up for us by either sending us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com or hashtagging my Jasper and real talk RJ with your photos and your videos. And Kaylin is in the spotlight today. She catches real talk from her home in Vancouver. She says, I love Wednesday mornings on the show because you take us out to Jasper She said, for my partner Logan and I, Jasper is home to our love story. Every time we go back, we feel like the rest of the world is melting away. It's leaving us in our red Adirondack chairs inside a sparkling little snow globe. These are her photos that you're seeing now. She says, Jasper is where we shared our first date. A whirlwind trip one February day where we skated on Pyramid Lake and meandered up to those chairs in the snow. A couple of years later, in the summer this time, that very same spot, we were engaged. She says, and like a cheesy rom-com plot, how could we resist? We'll be married on the island in the middle of Pyramid Lake next summer. Kaylin, I don't have to tell you, it's a stunning spot. She says, fingers crossed, we'll be able to hop on a rowboat after the ceremony to get back to the lodge. I can't remember, she says, if people maybe are aware of this or not but the team at pyramid lake resort has been amazing to work with as part of our wedding planning she says i like to think every time we're out there those bighorn sheep that show up are welcoming us home kaylin says by the way we want to congratulate all of you at real talk on your one year anniversary coming up that's right three weeks minus a day from now she says this show is full of integrity and heart and it's been an honor to see it evolve since day one She says, I felt inspired, intrigued, frustrated, furious, or sometimes something else. She says, for us on the West Coast, 7.30 a.m. Pacific is real talk time and will be so for a long time to come. Kaylin, your photos, your stories, your thoughts have made our day. And we wish you all the best as your Jasper love story continues. Again, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email or hashtag MyJasper and RealTalkRJ. We want to follow up on a story that we've been covering around the Ferry Creek blockades for quite some time. And if you know anything about Real Talk, you know that we're not going to take one side of a story and hammer it home without providing you information that you need to form a fully informed decision. The Ferry Creek blockades, of course, and we'll take you there now with this 
pretty cool graphic. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll be able to see it. For those tuning in the podcast, Google Earth is taking us onto Vancouver Island, southern portion of the island, to a small area that's become well-known to Canadians because of blockades that have been up for more than a year now. We talked to Brandy Morin, a journalist, about this. We talked to Eric Denhoff, a former deputy government minister and treaty negotiator about this. And it's a pleasure to welcome to the show now a spokesperson, in fact, director of Indigenous Partnerships and Strategic Relations for the forestry company involved in this, for Teal Jones Forestry, Conrad Brown. Welcome to the show and thanks for making time for us today. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. You bet. It's a pleasure to be here. We want to clearly understand the company's perspective here we want to understand some background information with regards to conversations that you've been having with local first nations Uh, you reached out to us uh, almost immediately following our interview with journalist brandy morin back on october 26th and and i want to hand the floor over to you conrad what was it that prompted your team to reach out to us uh, Brandy does some really excellent work, as you well know. She's a friend of your show, and uh, the difficulty we had was it was pretty one-sided, as sometimes those can be. Um, it's very difficult for a company like Teal Jones to get out and tell the story. We've been very quiet on purpose for an extended period of time, um, but now it's time to maybe let some of the other information flow uh, out of what's happening within TFL 46. Um, so just as a precursor for your, for your audience, Teal Jones is a privately held forest company, uh, two brothers, uh, Dick and Tom Jones, their father started the business when he returned from the war in 1946, one man, uh, and has grown the company to be, uh, one of the largest privately held forest companies on West coast. We've got over a thousand employees in British Columbia. We, uh, harvest trees absolutely we do both old growth and second growth the vast majority of our harvest is in second growth and these uh, this harvest provides us with the fiber to keep uh, again those thousand employees uh, working so when you talk about tfl 46 that's tree farm license 46 obviously can you i shouldn't say obviously it wouldn't be obvious to me unless i had notes <laughs> unless i had notes in front of me but but why don't we talk about that and how that works because i know that uh, one of the points that you're probably eager to make is that there are some protected areas within that license can you explain to the civilians that are going to be hearing this interview how it all works where you do logging where you don't do logging and how all of those agreements have been reached you bet so tfl 46 is approximately sixty thousand hectares uh the teal jones purchased the rights to log in tfl 46 approximately 20 years ago and we did that on purpose because at the same time we had just finished one of the largest uh investments on the west coast in recent memory in the in the late 80s and early 90s we built the second growth what's called a small log mill and we required the fiber from tfl 46 which again is the vast majority of the second growth uh, to fully operate the mill here in Surrey. The uh, TFL again is 60,000 hectares and the protesters have done an amazing job. They're very passionate, they're very dedicated, they're extremely well-funded and they're very savvy when it comes to social media. The difficulty comes is the world now thinks uh, Ferry Creek is this huge expanse. It really isn't. Ferry Creek is only 2,000 hectares it's been protected long before the protesters showed up and will be protected long after the protesters leave. That's an important point. The area that we were 
had permission, legally allowed to. We had permits. We had done the First Nation consultation. was on a very small section of just on the outer edge. So on your Google Earth, a beautiful picture of coming into that watershed. On the very top left-hand corner, there's a small, less than 200 hectare area that we had permission to go and harvest. Um, so when we started to go down that road to harvest, um, a young man in the United States doing some, some Google Earth and some other work found out that there was going to be some harvesting and he didn't like the fact that it was going to be harvesting. So he made contact with some Canadians. That's when the first protest started. When we went to go to go to work, uh, all of a sudden the protesters are there. We, I need to say this, we're 100% in favor of everybody's ability to protest as long as it's done legally, peacefully, and safely. So uh, our workers tried to go in, protesters turned them back. That was late in the year. We kind of let it sleeping dogs lie, so to speak, just waiting to see what was going to happen. Tried to go back into work a few months later. And again, the protesters were there turning us back. So we had to go to court. We got an injunction from the judge to allow us to continue to go do what we were legally and permitted to do. Um, and the judge at the same time asked the RCMP to uh, come in and enforce the court's wishes. That then turned into one of the largest or the largest civil disobedience uh, in Canada. It had tremendous effect on our ability to go and, and harvest. And the difficult part for us, Ryan, was just the old growth. They shut us down in many, many areas. They just turned, uh, turned their protest into second growth protests. And they'll sit and say that, oh, we're in favor of logging, just not old growth. It's simply not true. Um, so it made it very difficult. And uh, we had to, one of the judges felt that the RCMP, which Teal Jones has zero control of, uh, we're at the RCMP's mercy, just like everybody else. So when the judge found some of their actions was distasteful to him, uh, he stopped one of the uh, injunctions, uh, a different court, uh, has put that in abeyance, reinstituted that in court injunction, and the RCMP are currently out there uh, helping us to go and do some really important work that needs to get done before winter flies. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to ask you in particular about uh, police involvement here, in particular, obviously the RCMP, and and I'll reference back to my conversation with with journalist Brandy Morin, who was there for context. Uh, before I put this to you, Conrad, this was Brandy Morin on this program just a few days ago like tactical units out there, you know, they call them the greens and you're witnessing, you know, this violence against, you know, these uh, people that are, are there to, you know, protect the land that they strongly, strongly believe is the, you know, the thing to do. Um, and, and the police are in there um, enforcing this injunction. It's a civil injunction by the company. It's not even a criminal injunction. So there's nobody there to keep the RCMP accountable either. Uh, very little. Um, the only accountability they have is media and there's hardly any media out there. So it's like, it's, it's, it's it's insane. That was Brandy Morin on this show on October 26th. Are you, as the company, concerned about some of the actions that the RCMP has been taking, the way that they've been essentially doing business, enforcing that injunction? So it's important to clarify one of Brandy's statements that she called it the Teal Jones injunction. It isn't our Teal. It isn't ours. It's the court's injunction. 
to try to uphold the law out in the forest that there isn't anarchy. And what we're finding is when those protesters decide to act in civil disobedience and are willing to be arrested or put themselves in very dangerous and precarious positions, the RCMP have had to react to that. I will tell you, Ryan, that some of the antics and some of the things that the protesters are doing are extremely, extremely dangerous. And not only that, they're very harmful to the land base. They're digging trenches. They're undermining bridges. They're blocking culverts. They're building illegal roads. They're building illegal trails through old growth forests. There's a, there's a laundry list of things that the protesters have done that cause us great concern, that cause uh, huge amounts of uh, issues when it comes to the RCMP having to try to remove these protesters. They're locking themselves into devices that are buried into the ground. They're putting themselves 30 feet in the air in tripods. They're doing all kinds of different uh, tactics that they can to try to slow the RCMP from opening up the roads so that we can go in and do our legally permitted work. Is there any justification in your mind for logging so-called old growth? I mean, this is where I don't have to tell you, Conrad, this is where people's emotions come into play when they see a tree that that that's that's seen more centuries here. I mean, before this was Canada before. I mean, these are obviously trees that 10 people couldn't wrap their arms around. And when people start to see those stumps, you know, stumps that are 10 feet or more in diameter, that's when people get really emotional. What's the company's position on logging old growth? So we only harvest a very small percentage of old growth within TFL 46. Again, our main priority is into the second growth. The old growth forests that we do harvest are well regulated through the provincial government. There's lots of regulations and professional forestry that has to happen before we go and, and log a single tree. Uh, last count, there's over 104 various steps that a company has to undertake before they can even start to fall a tree, and then numerous ones after that to make sure that it's done safely. So we log old growth for specific reasons. It provides uh, a grain. It provides some qualities that other woods simply don't. And as far as we're concerned, there's enough old growth forest uh, to have small, sustainable forestry actions take place. It was over 10... Sorry, there's over 17 million hectares of old growth in the province of British Columbia. And out of that, there's only about three and a half to four million hectares that are available for harvest. Uh, To give people perspective, I I certainly think in terms of uh, I need visualization. So it's about two and a half football fields per hectare. Uh, So that'll give people an idea of sort of the area, the space that we're talking about. I'm I'm curious to know for for your interpretation or or the the relevance or the significance of uh, British Columbia's announcement yesterday being reported that the province of B.C. uh, will be working with First Nations to harvest ancient, rare and priority large stands of trees within about two and a half million, 2.6 million hectares of B.C.'s uh, most at-risk old growth forests. These so-called logging deferrals uh, seen as a temporary measure to prevent biodiversity loss, while First Nations, the province, and other partners develop a new approach to sustainable forest management. How is that relevant to Ferry Creek and to everything else that we're talking about? Just a quick correction, Ryan. No offense, but you said that we're allowed to go harvest there. You said harvesting. So the the deferrals are to prevent harvesting in your first part of your statement. So the statement is very clear. The province came out with a plan to try to defer 2.6 million hectares of what they call rare ecosystem uh, old growth. 
and they're now pushed that ball into the First Nations uh, court to try to determine within 30 days, which is a shockingly short amount of time, uh, and not doing true consultation to First Nations uh, to to agree with this process. The process, as far as we're concerned, is flawed. We, it hasn't been done on proper science, and I don't think that uh, that the voice for sitting at that particular panel. And we can get into that if you'd like to. Yeah, well, and I just and I want to clarify. I'm just saying BC will be working with First Nations to harvest ancient, rare, and priority old stands of trees. So the the, the keep you're, no, you're shaking no, your no, head. No. You said that they're working with First Nations to harvest. Yeah, that's not correct. They're working with First Nations to defer the harvest to make sure there isn't any harvest in the 2.6 uh, Yeah, I feel like we're, maybe we're getting into semantics and we probably agree, but the point is, in the context of how this will be managed, the, the province of BC is making an announcement that they will work with First Nations. That's the key point. That's where the emphasis needs to be in the sentence, right? Working with First Nations. Like, that's, that's I think, what a lot of people want to see here. I mean, whether I talk to Eric Denhoff or Brandy Moore or you or anybody else, a lot of the, what I think the rest of Canada is trying to figure out here is really what is the legitimate perspective of the First Nations involved here, of the indigenous communities involved here? Because depending on who you talk to, quite frankly, you're going to get very different answers on who's giving the green light here, who's concerned and who's speaking for whom. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you straight out that uh, Premier Horgan isn't very popular this morning in anybody's books. He's got the protesters mad at him. He's got the environmental groups mad at him. He's got industry mad at him. He's got the opposition mad at him. Uh, the whole process has has done a huge disruption, um, and it's it's shocking. It's potentially going to have upwards of eighteen thousand jobs, anywhere between twelve to sixteen sawmills, potentially two pulp mills, and numerous value-added uh, remanufacturing mills that are going to shut down if these numbers are sustained. So, Conrad, you're as part of your job title, you're director of Indigenous Partnerships and Strategic Relations. Can you give us a sense of how the company, how Teal Jones Forestry works with Indigenous communities, with these First Nations and, and in particular uh, relevant to, to the Ferry Creek area here? I think people would be really curious to know how the company has been corresponding with and working with the First Nations. So in the last uh, decade and a half to two decades, Teal Jones has had over 106 different relationships with different indigenous groups within British Columbia. Those relationships vary greatly depending on the First Nations wishes over time. Um, I will not speak to our business relationship with the Pachidat. You're more than welcome to reach out to the Pachidat to talk to them about it. I think it would be disrespectful for me to talk about it. I can talk to you about process. So the process is if we need to go and uh, start logging or we want to start logging within TFL 46, we have to approach the government with a plan, part of one of those 104 steps uh, that has to fit within a five-year stewardship plan. We have to approach the government and the government then asks us to approach the First Nation. We approach the First Nation through a referral process. We're very forward with them about what our intentions are. And then from there, they can say yes or they can say no. For us, they particularly said yes up until last year when they asked for a two-year deferral in certain areas, and we immediately agreed to that, immediately, for the, uh, because the First Nation had asked for it. So 
that relationship is important for the Apache Dot First Nation because it allows them to run their mill. It allows them to gain some forestry revenue. It allows them to do a number of things around revenue sharing with the province and then our own business relationship. Conrad, I think, you know, depending on, I mean, this 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 vast uh, country, uh, you know, we talk to you, we talk to people on the West Coast. These conversations probably would be about logging or fisheries. You get into our neck of the woods in Alberta. A lot of the conversation would be around oil and gas gas exploration and, and, and the development or uh, sustaining that industry. And then on the East Coast, it would be different as well. We'd probably talk about mining in certain parts of Quebec, Manitoba and Ontario. Uh, but natural resources are obviously a huge driver of Canada's economy, a huge job provider. But we also note, I mean, I, I look at one of the first commitments to come out of the COP26, the UN Conference on Climate Change. It's it's to stop or reverse deforestation. That's one of the big ones uh, here. You know, in Alberta, for example, with regards to oil and gas, you'll have people saying, listen, we need to leave the rest in the ground. We need to shut it all down right now. You have other people saying that's absolutely ridiculous. We need to do what we can to sustain industry while moving toward sustainable development in, in a new energy economy. And I mean, we have these conversations, it feels like two or three times a week. In your role, in your job, you must have noticed the tide turning with regards to how Canadians reconcile environmental protection and economic development or even economic protection. What have you noticed with regards to a change in tone or a change in national conversation over the past number of years? That's an awesome question. But before I answer that, I just want to make reference to your guys' earlier conversation around band. Central Memorial Marching Band, Calgary. That's, really? Uh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, absolutely, the tide has changed and it needs to change from the Indigenous point of view. UNDRIP is a hugely important uh, piece to that puzzle. British Columbia has, just like the federal government did, BC uh, adopted the UNDRIP uh, a uh, few weeks before the federal government did. And that's free and informed prior consent with First Nations before doing anything on the traditional territory. We've, we as a company of Teal Jones has been doing that for a period of time now. Uh, we're in the business of having true partnerships with First Nations. Uh, we want to make sure that what we're doing from a planning and an active uh, process, that the First Nations are well aware of it. And as we move through that, there are true partnerships. My role prior to coming back to Teal Jones uh, was as an economic development CEO for a First Nations uh, Economic Development Corporation. So I've been, I did that for 11 years and I switched over to industry because I think that there's more opportunity for industry to work with First Nations for their economic benefit. And my role is allowing me to do that. And the ownership of Teal has had the foresight to also be thinking that way for a number of years. Is there anything else, uh, Conrad, before we thank you for your time that I've not asked you about? I don't want you to feel like you didn't have a chance to have your say or to put items or points for consideration in front of our audience. Anything that we've uh, run the risk of leaving on the table? It's a very difficult 15 and 20 minute conversation, Ryan, and I do appreciate you having me on. Of course. The the one thing that's really important from from Teal's perspective is it's got to be remembered that we're doing what was legal what was permitted and First Nations consulted. We absolutely will follow the mandate of the law. We're awesome at what we do from forestry to harvesting to milling. Uh, we take great pride in that. And as the rules change and as they have changed previously, we'll continue to do a great job. 
And if there's uh, deferrals or areas that get put off limits, like they did with our TFL 46, that took a huge portion of our operating lands and put it into parks for protection of old growth. That was done in 1996. So uh, we're, we're kind of accustomed to this, but it's still a bit shocking when the numbers are coming out for the British Columbia government that they did yesterday. It's going to have a tremendous, tremendous impact on our province. Conrad Brown is Director of Indigenous Partnerships and Strategic Relations for Teal Jones Forestry. Thanks for reaching out to us. We appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on today. And uh, again, thank you. You got it. Of course, we'll continue to keep an eye on this story, including developments uh, out of British Columbia yesterday. I saw one of our audience members, can't remember who, my apologies, say if everybody's pissed at Premier Horgan, he must be doing something right. I've kind of felt like that some days, too. If you piss everybody off, you might be doing something right. Uh, we'll see. But a significant development there, and it's one that we'll continue to, to sift through and endeavor to understand. Uh, it's always our goal that if you make time for this show, uh, if you check out our interviews, that you feel better informed, that you feel you better understand uh, both the basics of a situation like this and also some of the different perspectives that come into play as you form your own opinions. If you've got something you want to talk out, if you've got some steam you want to blow off, you can send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. It feels like a pretty perfect time to remind you that the team at Local Waste has been since the very first broadcast we did. Someone said to me the other day, when are you going to evolve your language from broadcast to podcast? I said, well, we don't just do a podcast. We broadcast, we stream live every morning from broadcast to podcast or both. Local Waste has been there with us, family owned for a quarter century. Construction, commercial and residential waste and recycling collection. Whatever you can imagine you might need a bin for, they can work with you to find the right size and to make that process easy to manage. You can check them out online, learn more about the company at localwaste.ca, including their local waste story. They say shift happens. We now live in a local economy and the shift is tectonic. Local Waste presenting Trash Talk every Friday here on the show. Your emails read out blasted out as part of one of our favorite traditions we're also so grateful to have the support of the team at park power you know you can choose where you get your internet electricity and natural gas so what goes into making that decision for a lot of people it might be an opportunity to get into a fixed rate when it comes to your utilities without the commitment without being locked in you can change your mind at any time you can compare rates online their website parkpower.ca including internet electricity and natural gas find the rate that's right for you and when you bring your business to park power the promo code 2021-realtalk gets you 70 dollars off your first bill if you're already looking ahead to spring and how you'll bring your outdoor space to life, now is a perfect time to get in touch with Eden Landscaping. They've been bringing outdoor spaces to life for more than 20 years, and their work goes around the calendar year. Construction can continue on those three-season rooms that a lot of people are using to expand the footprint of their home, to make gathering as a family more comfortable. And of course, they're doing those big outdoor kitchens, including the gazebos or the pergolas over top, so you can be barbecuing in the middle of a snowy February. That's right, it's coming 
Plus, of course, the design work that they do sets you up for early spring construction. You'll find them at landscapeedmonton.ca. Well, we're really proud about our question of the week, and I'm excited to see where this goes. Of course, our official research and strategy partners every single day of the week are keeping an eye on this dashboard of ours that shows us who's chiming in and participating in this. If you go to RyanJesperson.com and click on question of the week, you'll find a follow up to our recent Real Talk Roundtable as part of ADHD Awareness Month. This week, our question is about neurodivergence, and we recognize, along with the team at Y Station, that this may be a somewhat awkward set of questions. We're getting really personal, but we think that it'll lead to more real conversations about mental health. We thank you in advance for participating in our question of the week, and we want to assure you that all of the answers that you provide are 100% confidential. The team at Y Station that puts the reports together does so from a data sheet sheet that has no identifying information. So you can speak freely without concern that you'd be identified. When you say neurodivergence, yeah, that's a big word. Just wondering what, what, what do we mean? Just for folks that may not know what that means. Take the question of the week. <laughs> Find Take out. Take the question of the week. Here are the results of our most recent question of the week and we appreciate everybody that chimed in on this of course if you support us on patreon you've already got the top sheet you had it yesterday in your inbox pages and pages of fascinating insight into what real talkers are all about we asked you this time about your political priorities now that city councils are sworn in now that the legislature is back in session now that we know what the federal cabinet looks like with this new kind of minority government And here's what you had to say. Here are some of the real key takeaways. 81% of real talkers that chimed in on the survey said that diversifying our economy for the future should be the provincial government's first priority. Now, what was the lowest priority, by the way? 81% of you said that, that, Sam, can you put that back up for me? 81% of you said diversifying our economy for the future, our first priority. The lowest, delivering on the referendum demands. That was one percent of respondents want to see alberta's government deliver on referendum results one percent and that might have been somebody just trolling us they wanted to see if no that's i okay. love that i like like good money well spent on that referendum yeah so that might be but so it could be i guess a couple of things i mean the equalization thing you can bang the drum all you want maybe it's the daylight saving time one that might be what people want to see delivery on here's another high level takeaway out of the top sheets from the team at y station 63 percent of real talkers that chimed in on this believe that alberta's reputation can be improved we want to point something out here um this is not an alberta talk show this is a national show. It's how we treat it. And we have audience members from across the country. So when people are chiming in on Alberta's reputation, it's not all people from Alberta. It's worth mentioning. So 63% of you believe that Alberta's reputation can be improved, but not by this government. That's pretty significant. Here's another interesting one. How did real talkers rate the outgoing mayors? in calgary and edmonton we're not talking about gregarious we're not talking about friendly or outspoken when i talk about outgoing mayors i'm not talking about the social dynamic we're talking about the mayors that left four out of five respondents 80 percent approved 
of Don Iveson's term. 84% approved of Ned Nenshi's term. Those are huge approval ratings when it comes to politicians at any level. And here's one final takeaway, which is an interesting one. We wanted to get in. We, of course, provide an opportunity for you to have your say, right, to fill in the blank, so to speak, to leave comments that go beyond the multiple choice questions. And I want to get into some of those. It's pretty interesting to hear from you when you tell us how you're feeling about politics just after an election. Because in a way, you've had your say to a certain degree, but there's always going to be follow up. So when it came to repairing Alberta's reputation, for example, we asked you, what's the number one thing you would do? Number one, an audience member said, I think we need to increase immigration. We need to fund and support other business sectors. We need to properly fund education and we need to diversify, diversify our economy. Went on to say, I think this government needs to positively talk about renewable energy sectors and not fight progressive ideas and change. Another one of you said, we need to focus on how we market Alberta to the rest of Canada. You know, for example, the spirit and determination of rural Albertans, the kindness that exists through the province, urban and rural alike. We need to move away from the cowboy aesthetic and make it about our communities another one and i really liked this one i'm curious to know how you two feel about this an audience member said i think it needs to start from within for example i would work on closing the divide by showing all people who live in alberta that they have value to this province i thought that was really good a change that starts from within showing all people here that they have value to the province that's a really beautiful sentiment but how do we do that um would be my next question i know it was it was in the question of the week so they only have so much space and only so much time so i appreciate the sentiment um but i think it goes goes back also to our roundtable from last friday talking about sense of place and talking about uh you know what is a sense of place and it is about the people and the people that live there i've thinking of Edmonton specifically at Calgary there's a little bit there too community leagues they are like the heart of communities and so it's about yeah getting connected knowing each other um and I think it's on the face-to-face level so oftentimes I think it's like when people feel despair frustration or even anger that's what can jolt someone into action Hmm. which I think is is really important um it's the so-called silver lining when people feel like all hell is breaking loose I pick I picture that the, the meme of like the is it like the dog sitting at the coffee table with fine. the fire all around going this is fine you sort of feel like a lot of times for people they'll say enough is enough and that's when they take action i mean this sentiment sort of echoes maybe in a way sarah what you just said an audience member said many things could be done but we're dealing right now with a provincial government that's not big on apologies or admitting any fault and it's really hard to work with somebody who will never concede anything I mean, it takes me back to that photo that that a real talker put in front of us right at the end as we wrapped up our show yesterday. You know, you've got Alberta's agriculture minister, Devin Dreeshen, facing pretty serious allegations that he's been abusive to staff, that he's been drinking to excess on the job. And the guy posts a photo yesterday taking a meeting over Zoom with his laptop on on top of a drink cooler balanced on coasters with what appears to be a bottle of wine under his desk next to him, like all these little sort of Easter eggs for people to find in the photo, this kind of smirk on his face. I mean, to me, if my former, and by the way, uh, the person 
And it's kind of unfortunate, I guess, that everything's got to this point um, that that's filed suit against the premier's office was in a relationship to a certain degree with the ag minister and has gone on record about how she started to be mistreated, how details of that relationship were surfacing by way of an anonymous Twitter account. In other words, there was a breach and this is involving the minister. But I don't know about you. But if I'm being implicated in a circumstance where it's being alleged that I'm inebriated on the job, that I'm abusing alcohol in the workplace, let alone as a public servant and a minister of the crown, and that I'm abusing staff members, either verbally or otherwise, the last thing I'm going to do is post a photo with my laptop on top of a drink cooler with coasters and a bottle of wine on the floor. All right. That really, really really says something about how this government's hardwired right you've got a fourth wave underway everybody's furious at the kenny government and the premier does an availability with a calgary stampede pennant stapled up on his wall that wasn't there before i mean this is a government as this audience member says not big on apologies or admitting any fault whatever's more than that whatever's a mega version of that that's this government I mean, can I break away for a second? And can you load up that clip for me of Jason Kenny throwing Alberta's chief medical officer of health under the bus? I mean, you knew that this was coming. The fourth wave that could ultimately be the straw that breaks the camel's back. It could ultimately be the fourth wave or at least the premier's response to it that ultimately ends his political career in Alberta. You had to know that he was going to find somebody to throw in front of that bus. And of course, predictably, it's Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Here's Jason Kenney. Uh, but in mid-August, uh, Dr. Hinshaw, uh, the chief medical officer, reached out uh, to me through the Minister of Health uh, to indicate concern and, and, and a decision to suspend most of those measures that had been announced in late July. Uh, I chaired an uh, emergency management cabinet committee meeting uh, in mid-August to accept her recommendations to pause those measures that had been announced in late July. And I continued uh, to be in daily contact with my staff and senior officials uh, during the two weeks that I took personal time. Uh, the first two weeks I've taken that much time in over three years, now over four years, Mr. Speaker. So uh, I, I continue to be in daily touch. Had there been further recommendations later in August to take additional measures, I would have immediately convened a cabinet committee meeting to approve those. It's a premier that won't take responsibility. And if you know Jason Kenney, you know that there's nobody on planet Earth that he's taken orders from, except maybe Stephen Harper. Jason Kenney wants you to believe that Dr. Tina Hinshaw has been calling the shots this whole time. It's simply not believable. When it came to, again, restoring trust or building trust between the provincial government and new municipal councils, I mean, how are the mayors in Calgary and Edmonton going to work with this premier? How are the municipal governments going to work with this provincial government? They have to. It's extremely important. Uh, you're already seeing some bypassing happening. You already know that the municipal governments will be working with the federal government. You know that the prime minister's got to love that. But here's how you suggested that we could maybe fix or repair the provincial municipal dynamic. One of you said, get a proper panel working on the issues that I believe are connected, says this audience member. Homelessness, drug abuse, crime that comes from it, including supervised consumption sites, so-called dry out facilities and access to housing and rehabilitation. Another one of you said, and, and I appreciate this feedback, one of you said the options in this survey are all negatively rooted. How about an open forum approach? 
a lot of thought goes into the wording and the phrasing of our questions of the week. If it feels negatively rooted, it's probably an acknowledgement that the relationship between the provincial government and the municipalities right now is virtually broken. And I'm not just talking about the urbanites in Calgary and Edmonton. I've spoken to enough rural mayors that will tell you that it's never been this bad, whether it's cuts that they're facing with regards to budget paying for their own policing or a hundred other things the rural mayors and reeves will tell you it's never been like this before here are some of your other comments and i love this we just ask you at the end of a survey anything else and here's what you've had to say one of you says alberta as a whole but most especially rural alberta has an incredible opportunity right now to really move the province forward into the 21st century Chaos, flux, uncertainty always precedes new organization and innovation, but there's still so much potential to turn things around from the backward movement of the past couple of years. Opportunity exists when it comes to things like renewables, battling climate change, attracting investment in new industry to the province and so much more. All we need to make this happen is optimistic, People-focused leadership, says this audience member. I believe the major cities now have that, and we need to do the same at the provincial level. How about this, though? On the flip side, another one of you said, I think that the progressive mayors in Calgary and Edmonton, Gondek and Sohi, will hamstring economic development by focusing on issues beyond their jurisdiction. They're both blinded by ideology and do not see the reality of the fiscal situation facing Albertans and Canadians. Another one of you said, I'm getting very tired of everything, if I'm being honest. The world is starting to realize that we cannot get off fossil fuels cold turkey. COVID-19 deaths are nothing compared to starvation deaths that I'm sure will hit third world countries because supply chains are not functioning smoothly. My farming friends are experiencing double the price on fertilizer and fuel costs are going up. Not too many electric tractors yet. Good luck to us all. Please do keep us posted on how you're feeling by participating in our questions of the week. We're eager to see the results of this upcoming one, the, the one that's currently underway on neurodivergence. And we'll let you know over the next two weeks, we'll be focusing on Remembrance Day and then on Real Talk's one year anniversary. That's going to be a fun one, guaranteed. Before we sign off for the day, we want to give a big shout out to the team at Kubi Energy. You know that they present positive reflections each and every week and, and when, when they're not busy on that they're busy on ensuring that western canadians can achieve their sustainable or even net zero energy goals kubi energy is providing solar energy solutions to power your life and that includes solar installs in residential commercial and industrial applications we've spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks talking to you about their agricultural work but what about their work in residences and even downtown towers the tech is changing tech so quickly changing when it comes to solar if you've had a few years since the last time you looked into it today's a perfect day to get a free quote see what your energy future could look like in partnership with kubi energy also a big shout out to the teams at st albert and sherwood dodge they know that winter's coming and they're well stocked to help your family prepare for safety on those highways 
If you've not had a four-wheel drive or maybe yours is starting to feel its age, it might be time to upgrade to a brand new offering out of the Jeep lineup, trusted since 1941, including that brand new Grand Cherokee L. It's the first ever third row of seating, the first ever seven-passenger Grand Cherokee, and they've got them in stock today at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Through the rest of this week, we're going to be focusing on your emails. We're going to be continuing to follow stories that have been all over our radar, making sure that you're up to speed on stories that matter most. We're grateful for your participation, including rating our podcast and leaving a review, sharing our content and smashing that like button. Thanks for joining us, friends. We'll talk to you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Editorial Producer Sarah Hoyles, Technical Producer Sam Brooks, Managing Director Josh Dunford, Account Coordinator Tanya Franklin, Merchandise Operations Katie Cook-Chivers, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's Editorial Board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.